Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel of the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben, and today my guest is Harry O'Meyer, Professor of New Testament and Early Christian Studies at Vancouver School of Theology. Today we're going to be talking to Harry about his new book, New Testament Christianity in the Roman World, just published by Oxford University Press, in a very exciting new series called Essentials of Biblical Studies. Harry, Congratulations on your book, and thanks for coming on to the show. Thanks so much. I'm delighted to be here. It's great to have you. Before we get into the book itself, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes. uh, I'm a Canadian biblical scholar. I was educated at uh, Oxford University. I worked with Morris Wiles, and my work has always been in the social history of Christianity. I've published widely I published a book on the book of Revelation, which is using autobiographical criticism to talk about the apocalypse. Mm. And I've written on iconography and the New Testament, especially with reference to the imperial cult and the study of Paul. And I've written a book on second century Christianity, especially as it relates to Clement of Rome and Ignatius of Antioch and the Shepherd of Hermas. And that's really Um, in many ways where my wheelhouse is, is in early second century Christianity. Um, I've been teaching at Vancouver School of Theology since the mid-1990s, and I'm also a fellow at the Max Weber Center for Advanced Cultural and Social Studies at the University of Erfurt. So I spend part of my year in Canada, here in Vancouver, and other the rest of the time in Erfurt in Germany. Wonderful. That's great. Uh, Today we're talking about your new book, which is called New Testament Christianity in the Roman World. Uh, It's got a really really interesting place in this new series. Can you tell us a little bit about this series, Essentials of Biblical Studies? Yes. um, The editors of the series have wanted to create a new series of introductions for non-specialist readers to understand aspects of both the Hebrew Bible and the culture that shaped the First Testament writings, as well as differing aspects of the New Testament. And they're anticipating, I think, several dozen volumes, actually. Um, a little bit like the, the very short introductions, though these are a little bit longer than the very short introductions published by OUP. And um, the idea here is that um, it would be a good thing to have specialists in different areas of biblical studies to focus in on one particular area and give a short monograph treatment of that area as a corollary to other introductory textbooks in which the field can be covered with enough detail. 
So we each then have been invited to offer our own comment on a particular niche within the field and then to write something that is accessible both to a broader public, but also to students who are just beginning their study, their studies in biblical studies. Very good. So you describe it as a short work. It's about 200 pages, isn't it? Um, it it's beautifully yes. written. It's very accessible um, and, and it really captures uh, the current the current state of thinking, but I think there's there's also things in here that are new, aren't there? Yes, there's a lot of things that are new here. In fact, as I wrote this book, I had to come to terms with the fact that many of the things that I've taught, I've had to relearn. Um, I, I I came up in my doctoral studies at a time when. The socio-historical and the socio-sociological study of the New Testament and early Christian and, and, and early Christianity was um, just kind of starting off, and we had too much emphasized the poverty of the early uh, Jesus believers, um, and that they were rather more like us middle class kinds of people um, who find ourselves um, in the mainstream church and. I think that the evidence is really pointing in a very different direction. And so I've had to do a lot of re reconfiguring of what I think and how I, how I express that. So it's, it's really had a profound impact also on how I even teach the discipline. Oh. Yeah. There's a very strong social historical aspect to this book, which is, is very compelling in the way in which you, you, you reconstruct both the early Christian movement, but also its social context uh, within the empire in the first couple of centuries. We, we, we get a sense of that in the way you've structured the book as you move in these six chapters from, a bit, from I suppose, the, the, most, the most macro context uh, of cosmology to the, to, to the micro context of the individual. Can you talk us through that structure briefly and tell us why you chose to, to structure the book in that way? Yes. So what I try to do is bring flesh and blood to the ways that the New Testament world and um, early Christians were living in the world uh, in a new way. Um, and the basic um, structure attempts to express the ways in which people in the ancient world were living multiple identities at the same time. I mean, in much of the ways that we today live multiple identities at the same time. So at the same time, for example, that we're citizens, we can be members of families, um, we can be tax uh, payers, um, we can be people working in industry, um, we can be members of sports clubs, we are many things, we're not one single thing. And so identity is a complicated matter for us today. And it it, it stands to reason that identity was a complicated thing in the ancient world as well. So what I try to do in the book then is I try to uh, move from the largest context, as it were, to the most precise or smallest one. So the book moves from the macro to the micro. Mm -hmm. And the way I conceive of the book in the introduction is I think of this as a number of uh, um, like uh, Russian dolls nested within one another. Mm -hmm. Um, so the largest then deals with questions of identity uh, under the gods and in the cosmos. And then, then we move down to um, identity in the empire, then identity in the city, identity in the household, 
uh, and then um, identity uh, within oneself. So my point in doing that is not to suggest that these are absolutely discrete because they flow into one another. The book might lead one to suppose that these are very discrete levels, almost like an archaeological dig mm. um, beginning sort of on the surface and going deeper down. But my point is rather that by looking at each one separately, we can begin to see how identities are entangled right the way through with one another. So so my intention then is to create a really kaleidoscopic um, representation of emergent Christianity in the first century and how it was related to its multiply lived social worlds. That's that's what I've tried to achieve in this book. Hmm. Well, I and I think that's really kind of what makes this book new and fresh. Yeah. One of the things that struck me as I read through this book, uh, enjoying it as much as I did, is that you uh, present this journey from the macro to the micro through the very specific social context of, of, of the empire in the first century. One of the things you say in the introduction is that you want to pluralise our idea of the Roman world. What do you mean by that, Harry? There wasn't a single Roman world in the same way that we could say there's not a single United Kingdom or there's not a single European Union, uh, there aren't singular Canadians and there aren't singular Americans. Um, we live many, many identities and our worlds are multiple. Um, so rather than conceiving things in monolithic blocks, I've rather tried to conceive of ways in which there are multiply lived realities that are dynamically intertwined with one another. So there's not one Roman world. There's many Roman worlds. That's the first thing. The second thing is that um, how the world looks is very different depending upon where we find ourselves in the particular social location where we live. So things look differently depending upon our gender. Things look differently depending upon our socioeconomic status, uh, depending upon our um, whether we live in an industrial country, whether we're rural, whether we're urban, and so on. So, so what I'm trying to get at here is I'm just trying to say that when we use words like or phrases like the Roman world or the early church or early Christians, these are shorthand ways, heuristic devices to talk about notions that are very, very complicated. So, so I'm trying to complexify that. And I think that when we do that, in fact, a very intriguing story begins to emerge in, in, in the midst of these dynamically lived realities. So that, that's what I mean by not one world, but many Roman worlds. Fascinating. Now, you give in the introduction to the book, or in the early part of the book, a, a sense of how different this world is from the world that we know. Uh, one of the things that I think was most striking about the introduction was the way in which you describe uh, life expectancy in the empire as being, I think, for a man around 25 years, for a woman around 23 years, maybe got that back to front, but massive poverty, hardly anyone, but I think you say 5% of the population might have lived into their 60s. So yes. th this, is a, this is a context of, of, of hunger, uh, subsistence, uh, existence, and what you do so effectively in your book is to, is to read that context out of the New Testament documents in a very rewarding way. Can we talk, first of all, about that first major chapter about gods and cosmology? Um, you, you address the question uh, in page 31, I think, 
how Christians were to interpret the world uh, in which they were living. How, how did they interpret the world in which they were living? I think they interpreted the world in which they were living as one in which they were largely had, had no control. Um, they were subject to um, large forces, the most important force being simple survival. They were faced with not a long life. They were faced with a world in which death was at the doorstep um, continually. Um, we in the we in the industrialized West, we barely experience death. And when we do experience death, it's in a very sanitized kind of way. Um, and um, at least in secular um, Vancouver, where I live, um, there will often be um, a request not to have funerals and so on. So there's absolutely very, very little attention to death, although it does manage to haunt us in horror movies and things like that. But And then there's a kind of a, equally a fascination with death. Um, in the ancient world, uh, death was really close at hand. Poverty was very close at hand. And um, that meant that... Um, one didn't really have a sense of control over oneself. So, so religion was at hand to form a means of protection, um, to uh, seek some kind of uh, benefits by honoring a god. Um, so, you, one would honor a god in in return for certain benefactions. Um, I make a sacrifice to a god, and then I. Um, my my journey will go well. Um, my toothache will go away. Uh, think, things very trivial like that to things really crucial, like my child will get better. Mm. Um, so that's one one way. The other way is uh, economically. So if the barest fraction of the population controls something like. Um, 60% of the wealth, um, that means that I am always going to be looking for somebody more or less to help me out in some kind of way wherever possible. So I'm going to try to make strategic allegiances with people, and the way that I'm going to do that in the ancient world is I'm going to honor people with wealth uh, in order to gain some crumb that might fall off their table to help my life go a little bit better. So all of this speaks to a much more desperate reality and religion, social relationships are all pitched with a view to surviving that very desperate reality. It's, it's, I think it's almost impossible for us in the first world industrialized West who are living in the middle class to really get our head around that. Those of us who are living in the industrialized West who are at the bottom of the social hierarchy, who face chronic unemployment, chronic addiction, homelessness, those would be people, I think, who would be more, who would recognize much better the kind of world that we're talking about when we're entering into the first century Roman world. One of the things you argue in the book is that the social structure of dependency, uh, the patronage um, hierarchical um, structure of society, is what's replicated in a lot of Roman cosmology as well. That's right. That's right. So just as um, just as uh, the social world is in a hierarchy, so the worlds of the gods or the worlds of cosmic powers are similarly 
in a hierarchy, just as there's a lot of competition going on within the social world for goods, so there's a lot of competition going on amongst the gods for honor. Um, so it's very much a kind of a dog-eat-dog world, and it's a dog-eat-dog kind of cosmos. Um, and that explains a little bit of the shenanigans of the gods that you find in mythology. Um, the gods are as interested in receiving honor and giving benefits as people in the ancient world are in finding people to honor in order to receive their benefits. So you kind of want to stay on the good side of the gods. And on another level, you kind of want to keep the gods kind of out of your business as well. Um, when they show up, unpredictable things uh, start to happen. Um, there's a great line from Fiddler on the Youth, or, or Fiddler on the Ruth, I think it's where Tevia says uh, something like, uh, God bless the czar and keep him far away. <laughs> and I think, I think and there's a similar sort of attitude towards the gods. On the one hand, you want the gods to do things for you. On the other hand, you want them to do things for you on your terms. And I, you know, I think that's, it, it just reflects a really capricious universe and a capricious social world. Now, in, in your book, you emphasize that the, the Christian writings have a reading of this cosmology, which emphasizes uh, the triumph of the Messiah figure within it. Uh, there's a fascinating passage uh, where you discuss baptism and the Lord's Supper as fitting into this Christian response to Roman cosmology. Could you talk us through some of the things you said there? Yeah, I think that one of the ways that ritual functions, so far as we can know about uh, lived ritual. So one of the things I just want to footnote while on my way towards answering that question is that this book is really trying to move us out of the world of doctrines and beliefs and sort of creedal formulations, um, theological formulations. And this book is trying to get us into the world of what lived religion looks like, what re lived religious practices were like, and how they were functioning. So this isn't an introduction to Christian doctrine or how doctrine developed. This is really a way of talking about lived daily life. So that's important then as uh, in an in introduction to um, um, how the how how the 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 book is trying to understand ritual. Um, I think that in ritual and baptism, for example, um, people are entering into a religious community where they're seeking uh, a kind of a patron deity to grant them particular goods and to grant them particular forms of safety in this very capricious world. Similarly, by entering into a shared meal, there's also an attempt to live in a world in a more secure kind of way. Now, I think that one of the things that how how early some forms of early Jesus belief distinguished themselves from other forms of belief is that there was something about the there was a belief about the ritual of baptism, there was a belief about the ritual of the Eucharist that meant that those people who belonged to these to to this to, to these communities that they were um also being called upon to enter into a shared community of goods. 
um, in which they were invited to uh, care for one another, to look out for the the uh, well-being of, of one another. And I think that had the effect of buffering people more from the capriciousness of the world. Um, so familial language of um, being brothers and sisters or familial language of talking about God as a loving parent, a loving father, uh, was a way to express a universe which perhaps was not as harsh and as capricious as they had lived, but that there was another way of experiencing the world, another way of engaging in a form of social identity through uh, mutually beneficial practices. Hmm. Your, your decision to present this as a social history or a contribution to the social history, social history. of the early Christian movement does really emphasize uh, the non-dogmatic nature of the content of, of what you argue. Uh, but I was really struck by the way in which you decided to use the term assemblies instead of churches as a way to open up the social character of these early Christian meetings. Could you talk us through why you did that? Yeah, because I think the word church implies or connotes a firm institutional structure with a firmly settled set of beliefs. Um, and assembly speaks more to a dynamic reality of groups and beliefs and institutions under 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 construction being assembled uh, as it were so that that that's mm -hmm. one way in which the term assembly i think is important another uh, another way that the term assembly is important is because it brings us into another way of conceiving of early christianity not so much as a set of institutions and ideas but rather as a set of networks, mm. of interlocking networks. And again, think about Lego, for example, and assembling blocks of Lego together. Those blocks can be put together in many different ways with different patterns to construct different kinds of realities. Church is a word um, that is a fairly modern well, certainly um, late, late ancient Christianity uh, onward um, understanding. And so the risk always then is in using nomenclature that the risk is importing anachronistic ideas back to the past. So I try to avoid that by just using a different, a different sort of term. I mean, the other thing is, is that um, the Greek word um, for church, ecclesia, uh, refers to an assembly of citizens or a body of citizens. It's a political term. It's a civic term. The, the term church does not imply or connote today an assembly of citizens or a civic political term. But in the ancient world, the word ecclesia really would have immediately um, connoted the idea we belong to another assembly of people. Right, so assembly here is functioning on a on, on a series of on, on a multiple levels of, of series of, of levels. Mm. It, I'm fascinated by the way in which New Testament writings pick up on assembly as a political term, and, and also the way in which you've shown in, in the second chapter on the emperor and the empire, the way in which a lot of the Christian vocabulary, New Testament vocabulary, is 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 
uh, repristinating in some senses standard diction from various kinds of political um, decree or, or inscription. The famous inscription to Augustus, for example, from 9 BCE, uses lots of language that New Testament writers would pick up on several generations later. That's right. So um, that that discussion, which um, I I also talk about, um, here's an advertisement for my for my third book, uh, picturing Paul and Empire, mm. uh, which I, I I I deal with that a lot, and the content of that chapter is in some ways reprising what I've um, expanded on at much much greater length in in, in another book, but. Oftentimes, the language of Savior, Gospel, Son of God, Ecclesia, what we translate as Church, uh, the advent of Jesus or the appearing of Jesus. Um, in the in, in traditional biblical studies, these terms are usually referred to almost exclusively to the Hebrew Scriptures. And indeed, these terms can be found in the Hebrew Scriptures. But... Um, my my argument is that while that is an important source for this language, a much more uh, pr- um, important source for this language was actually the lived reality of people in the world. And people were living in the world and in social worlds that were suffused with imperial language and suffused with imperial images, whether on buildings or in temples or on their coins Again and again, they were being reminded of the empire. Um, one um, second-century uh, writer, Plutarch, uh, advised young princes in cities uh, never to forget that the Roman boot was never far from their necks. And I think that 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 anecdote expresses how the Roman Empire was being experienced as a ubiquitous reality. Mm. Um, I think that exclusive focus on this kind of political vocabulary by reference to the Hebrew scriptures or the Old Testament results in the spiritualization of the language and making sure that the language really is about doctrines and um, religious beliefs, whereas in using this kind of political language in the first place, I think that early writers or early early teachers of of the movement they were wanting to be persuasive. They were trying to use the language that was available so as to express uh, metaphorically and and, and content wise the sorts of claims that they're they were wanting to make for their belief structures. Um, I think that uh, given the level of illiteracy in the ancient world, I doubt that there were many people sitting around um, poring over Hebrew Bible texts. Uh, Those were costly items that were not readily available in the first place. These were people who are living in an oral an oral culture. They learn by what they read or they learn by what they see. Mm-hmm. And texts then that are evocative um, using imperial language express a way of making kinds of religious claims immediately understandable, recognizable, and indeed capable of being envisioned because a lot of this iconography is 
as, as, as the term indicates, is visual. Mm-hmm. So you use evocative language to inspire certain kinds of um, um, mental pictures of what it is that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So I think I think the political language or reference to the pol- political language is very, very important for understanding um, the New Testament. Mm-hmm. So your book invites us to imagine uh, a world in which political language, the language of the empire, uh, the military power of the empire, uh, the icon, imperial iconography um, is, is pervasive. And yet it also invites us to imagine small, I think you emphasise the, the smallness, uh, small groups of, of uh, early Christians meeting in various locations uh, large houses, small workshops. Uh, you give us the example of Justin Martyr instructing Christians in room above a bath in Rome. Yes. Uh, and actually, as he does that, he's not aware of any other Christian gatherings in the capital city of the empire. So h- how did Christians then begin to carve out a, a, a rhetorical, um, a physical space for themselves, uh, even in the very heart of the empire? Well, I think that that's where the notion of assembly comes in again. I think that they began to carve out a space for themselves because there were a series of small networks that were interlinked with one another. Um, so in one part of my book, I talk about how the um, assemblies are located on major trade routes of, of the empire, and especially in the cradle of the movement, which I think was in Asia Minor or present-day Turkey on the west coast of, of, of contemporary Turkey, ancient Asia Minor. Um, these are places that are not located very far away from one another. In some cases, they're within a day's journey of each other. So it wouldn't be difficult to imagine the carving out of space by beginning to imagine these networks as constituting a kind of an alternative reality or an alternative way of thinking about the world mm. and practicing the world. Mm. Um, and um, in the city of Rome, I mean, the uh, city of Rome had roughly, there's a lot of debates about this, but up to a million people. And uh, this is a city, as I say in the book, that was more densely populated than the most densely populated city today on the planet. Um, so it's not difficult to 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 believe Justin that in fact he does not know of other Jesus believers in the city. Um, and uh, when Paul writes his letter to the Romans um, in the last chapter of Romans, in chapter sixteen, wh- one of the things that Paul's letter is doing is that he's trying to connect up these otherwise separated assemblies with one another so that in a long list of greetings, um, he's saying, greet this person, greet that person, greet this person, greet that person. And if, and, and he's expecting then that his letter will be read in these small circles. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that what he's trying to do there is, is he's trying to manufacture consent mm-hmm. for his gospel. And it's, that means it's by that means then that these various, uh, nodes um, are brought together and turned into a network uh, that Paul can use to promote his own ends. Hmm. That, that chapter, Romans chapter 16, is a passage returned to uh, quite a number of times in the book, isn't it? Because it's so full of sociological potential uh, for interpreting the character of the early movement. 
I think there's a passage where you talk about slavery and you use Romans 16 as, as, as a kind of a site to indicate that there's, uh, there's individuals mentioned there who may also be, whose names may reflect their status or their family status as slaves. Exactly. Um, so I think that the, um, the uh, names like uh, Julia or Junia um, are names that possibly reflect their status either as slaves that belong to aristocratic households with the name Julian, mm-hmm. um, or they were freed people. They were people who had once been slaves, but they remain clients within these families um, and they're beholden to these, uh, to, to their patrons, um, to, um, give part of their wealth, uh, to them to be available for them, um, as they do business for them, uh, and so on. Um, these first believers that I talk about in this book were not aristocrats. They were not elite people. Sometimes in the study of or, or in um, discussion of uh, of the New Testament, uh, some scholars will talk about how there were there was a small body of elites or elite members or members of elite status who were in the early church. Well, given that um, the term elite would describe somewhere between somewhere uh, from one point five percent to less. That seems to me to be highly, highly unlikely. I mean, you're talking about, um, you know, uh, Bill Gates or something like that. Uh, And that just strikes me as being statistically highly, highly improbable. I think what scholars scholars are trying to say is they're trying to say, well, I don't know, maybe they were living um, 30 times above subsistence. And and my argument would be no. I think they're living maybe ten times above subsistence. Right. So you think in a passage like First Corinthians one, uh, which talks about not many wealthy are called, but that's right. that, that, that's not referring to the likes of Philemon, who you describe as a, a sort of a lower level wealthier individual with perhaps one slave. Exactly. But 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 someone actually much much superior to that. Yeah, I well, uh, not yes, right. Not many were wealthy. So sometimes it says, well, if not many were wealthy, if not many were of noble birth, then yes. some must have been of noble birth. And I think that unless there are compelling reasons to move in that interpretive direction, we should resist the temptation to do so. Um, Paul, I think, is being rhetorical there. I don't think he's being descriptive. I, I don't think he's wanting to engage in a kind of a socioeconomic analysis. Yeah. Well, he's, he's quoting Jeremiah. He's quoting Jeremiah in that passage, isn't he, I think? Or, or bouncing off Jeremiah. Yes, right. Um, right. Harry, look, this has been a fascinating discussion, but can I ask you just one question that your book doesn't cover that, that um, is a question that haunts me as I read the New Testament, and, and your book has provoked this question again, and it's about slaves. But it's, it's not a question about the morality of slavery or, or whether the Bible books condemn that or, or condone that. It's a much more practical question, very much in the spirit of the social history that your book is reconstructing. How, how did slaves get time off to go to Christian meetings? Slaves um, were not under the uh, 
urban slaves, I think rural slaves were quite different because rural slaves, when they're not working in the fields, they could actually be chained. Um, and there is archaeological remains that show chains and so on of rural slaves um, hold up in particular residences so that they wouldn't run away. Um, I think urban slaves were given more latitude to go about their master's business. Um, slaves were given days off, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, slaves were um, given um, time to participate in particular rituals. Um, so that they weren't under the watchful eye of their masters all the time. So I think that they would have had opportunities to join up with other, other social groups and with not necessarily behind their master's back, but perhaps with their master not even knowing what they were doing. Fascinating. Well, yeah. I, I, I might get some reading ideas from you at some other point uh, to pursue that topic. Harry, you've given us a lot of your time today, uh, but before we wind up the conversation, could you tell us perhaps what you're working on at the moment? Yeah, um, what I'm working on right now is I'm working on a book on how was space and time imagined and practiced in the urban conditions of second century Christianity and to a degree also in first century Christianity. So I, I've been very interested in um, spatiality and social geography mm-hmm. um, as a social historical tool for imagining urban space and urban practices in the, in the second century. Um, so that's, and I've written a number of essays on that. So um, that's the, that's the project that that I'm working on right now, and uh, I've got a sabbatical coming up, so I hope to write a book Great. on that. Well, I look forward to seeing that when that comes out. Uh, in the meantime, let me say thank you for writing New Testament Christianity in the Roman World, just published by Oxford University Press, and for coming onto the show to talk to us about it. Thank you for your time, and take care. Yeah, it's been my delight. Thank you so much for asking me. Thanks, Harry. And thanks to everyone listening. Uh, I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies channel of the New Books Network podcast. Goodbye.